I didn't hear a word you said because Siri just started talking to me. So <laughs> say it one more time. Welcome to Clocker Counter. I'm James Wiseman and with me is Ryan Young. So Ryan, we're going to start off with a little bit of banter like we often do, which I'm sure some of the people really like and a lot of people really don't. But today's random update is I've been still playing a lot of Ultimates. And just like in freestyle, I'm having a little bit of slump. You know, sometimes you play well, sometimes you don't. And one of the things I tried to do to get back into the swing of things is I brought the Z meter out to Ultimate. And I also brought it out because one of the Ultimate players wanted to practice getting more spin on his flick. So if you've never seen one of these before, it's a really cool device. I only know of two and I have one and you have one. I'm sure there's others, but they're really hard to find. But it's this little (laughs) device that you can attach to the center of a desk and it measures how much spin you can throw. And what's really cool about it is it doesn't interfere too much with your throwing mechanics. It's not that heavy. It's in the center. It's definitely a little bit different, but it's pretty, pretty close. And the interesting thing about the Z meter is it only goes up to 995. So we have no idea if people can throw more than that, which I think I've talked about before. I think I've also said before that the average good freestyler throws around the mid 800s with just a normal backhand. Do you think that's right, Ryan? Mm -hmm. I should say there's a little bit of debate whether both of our Z meters are calibrated the same. We should probably bring both of them out (laughs) once to see if they're close to each other. And I only say that because yours was the first one I ever used. And people were recording higher values than I've ever seen since. Like even Rob Freed was throwing like, he says 967, which is impossible because it only goes in five, five RPM increments. But that's the legend is that he threw like 967 or something. Anyways, so we brought it out to Ultimate and a lot of the Ultimate players really fired up to try it. And I found that the average Ultimate player threw max around 850, 855 off of a full field throw. So my first question for you is, how many people do you think can throw 995? I think a lot, especially a full field throw. Because when I bought the device, the guy t- wrote me back saying, amateur disc golfers throw over 995 on their, th- on their distance okay. throw. That makes sense to me. But based on my freestyle experience, I feel like it's pretty rare for people to be able to throw nine nine five let's say within 10 feet what do you think of that how many people do you think you can throw yeah so the normal freestyle throw i'd like yeah so that makes me feel much better because i told alex my ultimate friend that i thought between 15 and 20 people could throw nine nine five which on the one hand seems like a really small number given that freestylers are trying to throw as hard as possible but on the other hand maybe it is that hard to do i mean I just don't know. I was thinking in my head just now whether there's a bunch of people listening at home thinking that's crazy. There's got to be 50 or 100 people that can do it. Or if there's people who think, no, that's crazy. It's probably only four or five. But I think I can think of maybe 10 people that I know can throw 995 either because I've seen it with the Z meter or it just seems impossible that they're throwing less than that. But I mean, one, why do you think it's so few people that can throw 995 i think the first one is just like human mechanics like we're all kind of the same size and there's just like a limit on leverage and speed and like the size of our muscles but 
I can't throw 995 without a Mac. So anyone with a decent Mac can throw 995. So it's like how many players That's true. have a decent Mac? So maybe Mac? we should limit it even further, though, and say how many people can throw 995 without a Mac within 10 feet? Who? I only know two people, Daniel O'Neill and But I can Vu do it with Wonder. a staker, a chicken wing, and then a Mac. So that I can do that. And I bet you, I know Benno can do it. And I bet you, oh, I'm running out of names, honestly. But I also think if more people were throwing, Harry, Harold Hines could do it. I think if more people were throwing (laughs) chicken wing type throws, they could do it. Because my only throws that do it that aren't maxed are chicken wing adjacent. Because you have your entire arm generating the leverage. But can Daniel throw 995 with just truly a, a backhand? Yep, that's just incredible. Backhand. That is incredible. And it's accurate. Because mm-hmm. that's, he might be the only one who can do that. Maybe, maybe Vu, Vu can. I know Vu can. I've seen him do it. Maybe Pavel and maybe Benno. But that's, that's pretty rarefied error. Yeah. The difference is Daniel's throw is, comes out like a normal throw. Everyone else has to compromise something to get the spin. Really? Vu, I guess Vu might not be quite as accurate, although it's not. It's not that he's... It's going to be on an angle, like side to side yeah. angle. Wow, that's, that's wild. But I guess another question would be, how many people do you think are capable of throwing 995, but just haven't gotten there or we don't have the right training techniques to do it? I think a lot more. I also don't think we have the perfect technique at the moment. And there's a technique that makes anyone be able well, to let throw Let me come back to that because I think... On but, the first question of how many people are capable of it, I wonder if 995 is like the 100 mile per hour fastball, which is, I don't know a lot about baseball, but it seems like there's only a certain percentage of people that are even capable of doing it. Like even professional MLB players making a quarter billion dollars over 10 years can't throw 100 miles per hour. But if 1% of the population or even like 0.001% of the population is able to throw 100 <laughs> miles per hour, then obviously millions and millions of people are capable of it, but it's incredibly rare that you find someone who actually learns how to do it that way. But I bet a significant, like a larger, like there's a much larger population that can throw it a hundred miles per hour, but not accurately. True. Like, but even then I'd still think you could, well, let's put it another way too. I think, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think accuracy, most people, if not anybody could develop but like the literal ability and strength and power to throw hundred miles per hour might be a limiting factor that you can't overcome if you're not able to like, I'm not, ex- my words are not coming very well today, but I think if you were capable of throwing hundred miles per hour, you could probably develop accuracy, but there are some people who are just never going to be capable of throwing hundred miles per hour, no matter what. Hmm. I think I'm on the other side of that. Cause when you look at it from a physics perspective, your body's like way more capable than you think. Like the one I always think about is you take like the cross section of your leg and you're like, if you jump off a certain height at what height would it break your leg? And it's like 70 feet or something like that, which is like way higher than you would think jumping off of something before you break your leg. It's just that we're imperfect when we land that we break our legs way lower than 70 feet. But if we were perfectly executing the fall off the building at 70 feet we wouldn't break our legs and like that's the same if we were like perfectly executing the baseball throw it would be a hundred thousand hours here's my response and i don't know if this is right or not i'm just hypothesizing if i jumped off 70 feet 
150 times and somehow you could repair my leg each time. I think three out of the 150, I wouldn't break my legs, which means that although most of the time I'm going to screw it up every now and then I would not break my legs. And eventually I could learn to not break my Mm -hmm. legs. The difference between that and the fastball is I could throw a million fastballs and never get anywhere close to hundred miles per hour. So I think the example you just provided of how our bodies are capable of a lot more, I think variance would let you experience the extremes every now and then, and you could eventually hone in on your maximum. Whereas I think the hundred mile per hour fastball or nine, nine, five throw you, like you would think I've thrown the disc enough that every now and then I would accidentally throw nine, nine, five with just a normal backhand, but I haven't, which probably suggests that absence, a lot of strength training, I can't do it with my current body. Oh, wait, you think without straight, I was counting straight training as part of the, is, are you capable? Like everyone's training to well, do it. Well, uh, now we're getting, now our hypotheticals have gotten really complicated <laughs> and have too many assumptions baked in. But I guess, yeah, I think, well, first of all, I don't know how much strength has to do with it. It seems intuitive that it would have a lot to do with it. But then there are people, which reminds you of another person who can throw a 995 who is doing it with just a backhand with the perfect accuracy and a perfect angle, which is dirty Harry in Berlin can do it. And he doesn't look particularly strong. And even Daniel, who I know is very strong, he's throwing more spin than maybe Benno and Benno is probably five times stronger than him. So I just don't know. But one other thing, and we should, (laughs) we can move on soon because I think this has gotten too complicated. But one other thing that I do think is interesting is you suggesting that there's some technique that we could learn that maybe we'd all be able to throw a 995. I have my doubts about that. And I'm a little bit bummed about this from my own experience, which is that it surprised me how I hate to say it in these words and people are going to flame me for it, but I hate to, I've experienced how little technique matters. And the way I've experienced this is I have the Z meter so I can measure how much spin I'm throwing and I will try 25 totally different techniques and basically my throw is within 20 or 30 rpms every time and to give an extreme example benno who i've often tried to emulate in different throws when he throws a backhand instead of curling his fingers around the disc like almost everybody else where your hand is almost in a fist when you hold it he fans his fingers out so that his fingers are like high-fiving the bottom of the disc and throws it. I don't really have an analogy for it, but instead of a fist, just imagine an open palm. That's how Benno throws it. That's wildly different than how I throw it, right? So the first time he showed me that, I was like, cool, let me try it. And I used the fan throw technique and it had no effect on the amount of spin I threw. I threw the exact same amount of spin as I did with a closed fist. So it, it's... I was probably getting to that amount of spin through different muscles or different generating that force in different parts of my arm, wrist, fingers or whatever, but I still was kind of hitting the same maximum. And that always stuck with me. I think that's a different problem. It's more like there are so many different paths and so many different techniques and they all multiply together. You need a thousand reps of every combination to know which combination is the best. Like it can't be done with 20, like the sample size is too small. And yeah, it's like a, we have 
I always talk about how humans have a bad intuition on probability. Yeah. I think it's that problem. It's like we think 20 is good enough, but it's not. It needed a I thousand do think reps. That, well, if that's an interesting in my hypothetical, it's not a hypothetical that actually happened, but that's a good thing. Interesting thing to think about for what I just said, which is if I can throw the fan technique at my current spin immediately, does that mean if I actually worked on it and developed it, it would be far <laughs> superior once I reach some threshold? I mean, it is, yeah, it's definitely interesting to think about. It's kind of, we talked about this before, but how we could be so wrong about the techniques we're using. If we were just using other ones, we'd, we'd get there. It's because my muscles have formed, like there's more muscle in the technique that I use primarily. So if I change my technique, I don't have like the muscle mass in the specific places yet. I have to like build muscle think, mass I'm there. going to the kind of strength training point you brought up. I do think it has a somewhat significant role and it has a significant role in a weird way, which is, this is a little bit of a rabbit hole, but when I was a drummer, I got really bad tendonitis in my wrist and it prevented me from playing for a while and I had to go to physical therapy. And in physical therapy, I learned that I had to strengthen all the muscles I don't use when I drum because I guess what happens when you do something really repetitively is you build up the muscles you're using, but your other muscles atrophy and they eventually atrophy to the point that they affect the repetitive movement. So I've definitely experienced this with throwing <laughs> because I often find, and this has happened to me now and I'm starting to strength train a little bit to get ready for the gym. My throws just start failing or like I feel I'm putting in so much power and I just can't retain that power through the throwing motion because it just hits some muscle that's atrophied and just dies. But just a week of push-ups and hand and grip exercises and usually I can overcome that. And it's also the difference between consistently throwing 860 and 915, which is kind of my like normal range. And if I just can <laughs> keep my arms strong enough outside of freestyle, 915 is attainable and comfortable, but I'm, it's like eating healthy. I'm terrible at <laughs> actually keeping <laughs> my arm shape together. I think a good example is how everyone says to work out your core, like in every activity you do, like bike racing or water polo you probably have to work out your core but there's never an activity where it works out your core enough by itself it's always like you have to do core stuff on top of whatever your yeah. primary sport is i think it's like that it's like whatever you're working on doesn't work out your core enough but if you had a stronger core it would help out yeah. all your strong muscles okay anyway so moving on we have uh, a bunch <laughs> of questions that we haven't really got to now, last time when we did our routine building episode, we felt like we did a pretty good job because I actually came prepared with a list of bullet points. So you think we would learn from that and we would have reviewed the questions ahead of time and come up with some bullet points for us to have a good substantive conversation. We didn't do that. So I'm going to read you these questions, Ryan, and you're, you don't, you technically have read these in the past, but you have no idea what we're talking about. And we're going to talk about them spontaneously, but hopefully we have <laughs> interesting things to say about it. So I'm going to, and there's also the smallest chance that we've answered some of these questions before, either indirectly, which is very likely, or directly. And I just forgot that we dealt with them before. So hopefully that's not going to be too <laughs> bad a problem. We're not exactly pros over here. Okay. So the first two questions which we got really early before my anonymous rule came into play, which just as a reminder, if you want us to use your name, you have to actively let us know 
and we'll do it. Otherwise, we'll assume you want to be anonymous. And these two questions... <laughs> that you keep oh, changing whatever. that rule you, back and forth. You know that's what to do. Just tell me if you want me to use your name or not. It's that simple. If you don't tell me, I'm just going to assume you don't want people to know. And for this, these first two questions, I think it's important that the person who asked them remained anonymous because they're going to be a little bit controversial. So the first question, is the dominance of the delay in most routines or most freestyle a good thing? Oh, you mean how... After every throw, we take it on a center delay and then yes, we start our combo. Based on what I know <laughs> yeah. about the situation and the follow-up question, I think this is a general old school speed flow disc in the air versus modern new school <laughs> delay rim-based freestyle. Okay, so there's two different tracks. Okay, let's start with the old school versus new school topic, which is I think here's my view. The delay allows for more complex tricks. So having starting with a delay gives you time to like do something more advanced than if you couldn't do the delay, which is both good and bad because at the start you're allowing more players and newer players to get more into more advanced yeah. tricks earlier. But the downside is at the very tail end where everyone's just doing the delay all the Agreed. time. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, I don't know if I have a ton to add to that. I do think the delay is overly criticized. I think there's been an overcorrection to what the delay is and what it's good for. And I do think some of that comes from what you just said, which is that there is a problem among some freestylers where you get the throw, you delay it for four or five seconds standing there thinking about what you're going to do. And that is not what you should be doing. But I think the delay within the context of consecutive freestyle meaning you take the disc in just long enough to start moving it again, it's fine. And I have no problems mm -hmm. with rim delay, flat delay, whatever you want to do, as long as it's consecutive and has some tempo, I don't really care that it happens to be delay based. And I also think the delay is super cool. We just get used to it and kind of forget that sometimes. But <laughs> if you show someone who's never seen the delay before the delay, they often think it's, it's pretty hame. So I think that it gets a little bit of a bad rap, but I understand where the criticism comes from, which is that when freestyle does get bogged down and it is really slow and it's not very consecutive, it's the delay. That's the, the problem. So maybe if, go ahead, go ahead. Would you say, okay. Would you say there's good uses of delay and bad uses of delay? And we can just all agree that we should try and be doing the good of course. uses. I'm trying of to delay. think of a good analogy. I think there is some, good analogy in there like you're looking to find what's causing the problem and the delay is causing the problem but if you it's like throwing out the baby with a bathwater or something like if you you're getting rid of the delay because it's the root <laughs> of the problem but the complexity is that the delay is also the part of the solution to like 99 other problems so it's like if you get rid of the delay you're really destroying a lot of what's good and what's working in freestyle and I think I said this in the last podcast, but it's always good to remember that to me, the delay is the defining thing about freestyle that makes it different from every other frisbee sport. I'm sure there are other defining things too, but that's the thing that no one else is doing in their frisbee sports. Like other frisbee sports have catching, other frisbee sports have throwing, obviously. Other frisbee sports are team based. Mm -hmm. Like everything else <laughs> that happens in freestyle happens in other disc sports, but 
the delay is singular. There's no guts player out there that's working on their delay. So let's honor (laughs) that, I guess. I don't know. I just, I think we're too hard on it. Um, But I understand where they're coming from. And variety is the spice of life. If you took out the delay, you'd lose a lot of freestyle and the delay gets you to those places that you can't get to otherwise. And I would much rather live in a world where sometimes the delay slows things down than to just watch speed flow routines the rest of my life, which would be cool, but I think it would be too limited for my taste. Um, Cool. Related question, number two from this person. Is there a relationship between particular control skills and the apparent reducing import of throws in most routines or freestyle play in general? You mean how we just, everyone just throws a normal backhand nowadays and we're not like whatever we catch we yes, throw I again do think, is that well, good it or says, bad <laughs> is there a relationship i think the obvious answer is yes the reason we do more standard backspin high spin throws is that more freestyle involves complicated moves where spin is important and accuracy in the throw is important so obviously there's a relationship the question is not but i think we should ask this question is is that a good thing or not so why don't you go first i see i think it Depends. We'll probably talk about this way in the future, but what do we want freestyle to look like and Mm. how do we get it there? And we can just pick what that answer is. So if we decide this is a good thing, we'll just incentivize it and tell people good job when they do it, which I like. I like having, I prefer having one single strong throw over a bunch of variety of throws that are all not as good. That's my personal preference, but I can. I would still play in the other world where variety is. Yeah. King. I do think it's a bummer that there isn't more throw variety. And I do think a lot of that is because throw variety comes at the cost of spin and accuracy, depending on the throws and spin and accuracy are highly valued in modern freestyle. And that's just a trade off. It kind of goes back to what we we're talking about with the delay. Everything has a trade off. If you want, more of this, you're going to lose some of that. And kind of thinking like we sometimes do about what the future freestyle would look like if everyone was supercharged in skill, I think there would be more throw variety because people would find more throws that would generate top levels of spin. And they would also have the million reps on multiple throws instead of just one. Maybe in the new judging system, we might see more throw variety because I think it's a little bit more valuable in variety and it's a little bit less risky to make mistakes than it was in the past. So I think for instance, I used to often build in throw variety into routines that would always get abandoned once we were actually on the field. Like the number of times (laughs) I planned the first throw to be just something other than a backhand throw. And then as we're going up there, I think, is it really worth it to try to do this other throw (laughs) and just do a backhand. And I always settled for the backhand. And then one other aspect of this, which we haven't talked about too much, but something that is a theme and how I think about freestyle, which is our moves, negative, neutral, or positive and positive moves always elevate what you're doing. Neutral moves just don't affect it one way or another and negative moves bring it up or down. Neutral and positive. That's all you want to do. If it's neutral, it's fine. If it's positive, it's fine. You want to avoid negative. So 
what's in what what's a negative mood? Well, <laughs> I, know, I wanted examples. I have know, my three. Well, before but I even get there, <laughs> context is important. So it's not necessarily that something is always a positive, negative, or neutral mood. It is important the context of the combo. So if you do an incredibly pain, difficult, consecutive combo, and you end in a spinning chair, that spinning chair might become a negative move because in the context of everything else you did, it just brought the whole move down. Whereas if you do a bunch of really basic things and you're not doing anything that consecutive and you do that same spinning chair, that might be a positive move because it elevated everything else that you did. But in general, things tend to be in a certain category. So like I think triple fakes are usually neutral. They don't often like make your <laughs> combo better, but they're certainly, in my opinion, not going to make it worse. For me, negative, the obvious example is under the leg. And a, and a quick aside <laughs> yeah, on that, I, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not a perfect person and sometimes I'm a little bit mean and grumpy. And I was playing Ultimate the other day and it was the really casual day where there aren't really any rules. It was the end of the day and everyone was getting really sloppy and I cut to the end zone. I was wide open. Someone threw it to me and I had the impulse to do a freestyle move like a scarecrow or something. But then I just like, ah, no, I don't want to stir up any problems. So I caught it normally. And after I caught it normally, I said something like, Ugh, I really wanted to do something stupid, but I just caught it. And this person who I did not know at all, it doesn't come to ultimate very much, said something like, oh, are you going to catch it like under the leg or behind the back? I was like, no, like I would never do something so dumb. <laughs> like I got really <laughs> mad at them because I was just like, I would never deign to catch it under the leg like that. Um, so that's that's my personal word that not everyone agrees with, but I, I tend to find under the leg moves negative. And the reason I bring all this up is I think the delay, as long as you're not sitting there doing the nothing delay, is kind of neutral or sorry, sorry, I already forgot what you went. The backhand mm -hmm. throw is neutral. So I think it's so nondescript. It doesn't make things better. It doesn't make things worse that it becomes more common. I think if it was either positive or negative, it would happen less. But because it's not noticeable, you don't really lose anything by doing it. So in every example I just mentioned where I had a routine where I was going to start with a non-backhand throw, I was like, okay, like I can take the risk to do this interesting throw and probably no one's going to notice it or I might screw it up and then it's going to be a, I'm going to lose points. But if I throw a backhand, no one's going to say anything about it. There's not going to be any problems from throwing a backhand. And <laughs> that's, I think, part of why people do it so much. Yep. Yeah, we'd have to have a conscious shift to be like, you have to, if you have more than six backhand throws, yeah. you lose. Yeah, like a cap <laughs> or, I mean, that's where you say like a shift in culture would change people's behavior. So if it became more apparent that you only threw backhand clock right-handed, people would start to think about it differently and, and do it less. But before we move on past the positive, negative, neutral, do you have clear positive, negative, neutral moves you want to talk about? My most basic was be guidus chair under so the leg. So guidus is positive, chair is neutral, and other leg is negative? Yep. Yeah. I think guidus, why it's been so successful is that it's, I don't want to say the easiest because there's lots of easier things, but it's the easiest, most common. I'm being a little circular here. Sorry. I'll make it simple. Don't get in my own head. I get in my own head. Guidus is the easiest positive catch. And that's why everyone does it. I think so. 
I think it's like that thing, it's irreplaceable. Like you always talk about how steals in basketball are worth seven points because nothing yeah. can replace a steal. Like what do you replace the guys with? There's nothing in that slot. That's that a great point. So it's the, better or it's a, like the translational jumping catch. Like you're moving to the side and you're, you need to figure out a way to catch it. That's really cool. I mean, the only thing you can replace it with is translational spitting catches, which are not that easy to do. <laughs> what like barrel guidance? There's a, I don't can't even think yeah, of another think, one. So for me, for instance, because I was never good at guidance, like laser. Instead of guidancing in the situations where everyone else was guidancing, I always made those into doubles, and they're often like double standing catches okay. because I would use the double to I make see. the translation, and then it didn't. Then I was there, and I could catch whatever I wanted to catch. But for most people, that's a guidance because they're not gonna spin and move in a particular direction. Or at least they don't have the okay. ability to flex while they're spinning. F flex meaning be flexible, not flex your muscles or something. It's like guidance. People are really good at <laughs> flexing it so they can do it further or closer or higher or lower, but they can't do that with spins. Their spins are very set. So my strategy, because I couldn't guide us, was I would do it with spinning. Um, but I know what you mean. Like if you think about, like I don't think we've talked about it much and I made a tutorial about this and I don't remember if I ever posted it, but I always thought about, catch zones and you have three zones below your waist, waist to shoulder, shoulder above, and certain catches fall in certain zones. And then you have left and right. And you want to have catches in every zone so that you can have a solution to every problem that comes up. But there's kind of like separate zones and there's like a guide zone basically where almost no other catch falls into it. And that's why <laughs> it's so valuable. There certainly aren't any other good catches that fall into it. I kind of, I'm in my head, I'm picturing some like video game, where you're looking at your character and it like visualizes all the zones and it tells you what catches they have in those zones. Yeah. You equip the exactly. catch into the and slot. So like in the guidance <laughs> zone slot, like you pretty much only have guidance or laser or what we call like barrel, even though it's not an old school barrel and it's not a spinning barrel, but it's just the silly leaping under the leg catch. Anyways, right. one day we'll do another podcast about Catch zones, positive and negative catches. We always find a way to find some freestyle philosophy. So hopefully that's that's good. Okay. We're gonna have, the next ones are a little bit faster. So this will be our our grab bag, grab bag here. So here's an easy one. It's almost so easy, I don't even want to do it, but I'm gonna do it. Ryan, where would you like to go for a tournament? Prague? I can't think, I think of what context this this question did question not have a lot in. of context that's honestly, where my favorite tournament is i think there's two ways to answer one is just if you have your druthers and you can outside you, or inside you're looking at the next two years you have one week of vacation okay. you have to pick which tournament do you go to which tournament would it be i'm going where worlds is <laughs> that's the worst answer okay you can pick where worlds is whoa yeah. oh i can pick hmm Am I going to pick a community that will go indoors for the world championships? I have like the location doesn't matter to me at all. But, like where every place has ice cream. It doesn't matter. This is why it's really so hard matter. to be your friend, Ryan. I ask you a very simple question <laughs> and you make it incredibly complicated. <laughs> I do the exact same thing. So I don't know why I'm teasing you about it. Okay. I'm going to try to eliminate <laughs> as many variables. Okay. It can't be worlds. It's got to be random tournament, totally generic. It's not a major. It's not a worlds. It's nothing. It, you you will not know, cannot know ahead of time whether it's indoors or outdoors. Let's say it's both. Some of it's going to be outdoors. Some of it's going to be indoors. So hopefully, whether it's indoors, outdoors, 
tournament type, we've canceled that out. You just have to pick. I'm going to go to this one-off tournament in what city? I can't. None of that matters at all. Any of those conditions. A bigger fact would be like, are you going to be at the tournament? <laughs> all right. I'll try to answer the question. I, okay. You can. I will say it is hard because you're so influenced by everything that's outside of the city. Like I do think one thing you're kind of saying is that the city itself isn't that important to you. What matters is everything else, like the tournament and who's there and how it's run mm -hmm. and is there ice cream, but there's always ice cream. But I would go back to Grand Canaria in a heartbeat for the right tournament. I say okay. that and I've been invited to multiple and I don't go because it's almost <laughs> impossible for me to get there. But if I could just push a button and teleport there, I would go there anytime. It was such a great city it was a really beautiful place great conditions beach lit up at night beautiful sand huge turnout that was a really special experience was that is that specific to grand canaria a lot of, of it is things? how many other lit up okay. beaches have you played on how many other black sand beaches okay. have you played on i mean i was compared to like a beach weekend here in it also Washington. had the probably like 180 degree beach where you could just move where you were depending on where the wind was to make sure you had the wind pretty much any yeah, day. Yeah, that part was nice. And it was also about as close. It was a really good connection between city eating and playing field. Like you could just step off the field and there was unlimited seafood options around. They're a little bit expensive, but that was really cool. But that was a great event. I do love going to Prague though. I love going to Prague. I think I like Prague just because the public transportation is so good. It's like easy to move around and it's cheap to Uber. Can you think of it? Yeah. <laughs> transportation is a huge, it's like worth more than the playing can you think surface. Of a non, can you think of a city where a freestyle tournament hasn't happened and maybe doesn't even have freestylers that for some reason you'd want to do a tournament in? Oh, yeah. like a new place? Uh, maybe the Philippines. I don't know. I always go to places where people, where there's potential. It's like has nothing to do with the conditions or the I location. guess there's been events here, but any seaside beach weekend beach for a tournament would be incredible, which hasn't happened since we first started playing. But that is to me the best beach in the world. Or I say that all the beaches along the Washington, Oregon coast are the best beaches. Yeah. yeah they're not great beaches for other people, which is part of the allure for freestyle, <laughs> but it's miles of hard pack flat sand that doesn't seem to bother the disc very much. And it's just perfect. The tides yeah. don't matter. It's, it's <laughs> I love beach weekend. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm going to skip one of these cause it's too big and we kind of already touched on it. Okay. Let's go to the Dougie fresh questionnaire section. Some of these are winners. Okay. Some of them I'm not so sure about. So I'll read all of his questions and we'll go through. So Dougie fresh writes historically Skippy talked a lot about the steam vapor diet. What are your nutritional suggestions for jamming? Do you have special pre-tournament meals? Any thoughts on bouillabaisse? So Ryan, let's start out. Any nutritional suggestions for jamming? And I should just warn whoever's listening that when it comes <laughs> to nutrition, neither Ryan nor I is a, a good source of information, but you in particular, Ryan, have some pretty wild preferences when it comes to eating. So what are your nutritional suggestions for jamming? For jamming, I think any calories are calories. So from, okay, I have a lot of 
bike nutrition mixed in with my yeah. freestyle nutrition. So in cycling, it doesn't matter what you eat when you're on the bike. And I use that same analogy when I'm jamming. It's like when I'm jamming, it doesn't matter what I eat. I just eat chocolate or sometimes I'll shake out a Coke and just drink that for the whole tournament or shake out the carbonation. Like I just need the sugar and the calories so I don't bonk while I'm jamming. And more important than what I'm eating is how often I eat. So you, which is more yeah, often so you than you try think. to eat very regularly so you don't bonk. Yeah, you just eat marshmallows. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I'll push back in a second. But <laughs> first, describe to everyone what bonking is. It's when your body, so your body has runs on glucose, which is sugar. And if you run out of sugar, because when you're running around, you're burning the sugar in your body, you bonk. And when it happens, you get nauseous and you can't like do anything anymore. It's hard to walk. Okay. Even before you cycle, because I don't want to blame everything on your cycling habit. <laughs> you had a long period where you were drinking uncarbonated flat room temperature Coca-Cola. And that was your, you said it was better than Gatorade. And so that's what you started drinking. And it was very gross and very disturbing. That was only for one tournament. It was the 2017 Worlds in Slovakia because in Europe, Gatorade's not as big as it is here in the US. So you can't get it there. So the next best thing is soda but it's carbonated. So I have to shake out the carbonation. So it turns back into Gatorade. So I have a pretty bad soda habit. And I remember Rob Free telling me once, and I always thought this was good advice. He said, if something has to be cold and or carbonated to taste good, it's probably not something you should be drinking. So if you, (laughs) if you drink regular flat, uncar, well, that's the same thing. If you drink flat room temperature, cola, and it tastes good to you, fine. But if it tastes like it does to most people really bad, it tells you this is what you're drinking and maybe you shouldn't be drinking it. I mean, all alcohol tastes really bad to me. Agreed. And, and me and you are that. unique in our non-drinking. Um, yeah, I mean, you and I are the worst people to ask about nutrition because I think we both eat pretty badly. <laughs> and especially when we travel for tournaments, our diet consists of chocolate and fast food. I do think the thing I do try to control because I know I eat pretty poorly is how close I eat to performance and how much I eat. So I do think before competing, especially I try to make sure I eat like at least an hour, hopefully a few hours before I have to compete and I eat enough so that I have energy, but don't feel like I have food in my stomach, which can be distracting like if my stomach is having to use my body's energy (laughs) to digest food then it's taking that energy from my freestyle how did you arrive at that conclusion was that through like reading things or over testing trying different methods i think it's from having the negative versions the negative experiences so one realizing right before you're about to compete which this still happens to me a lot which tells you that i probably err on the side of under eating where I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then right before I go on, I think, oh no, I'm pretty hungry. (laughs) And then I have the problem of, do I eat something which will at least break the signal in my brain that I'm hungry, but there's no way I'm going to get these calories into my bloodstream before I am doing my routine, but it's just breaking the signal good enough. Or do I not eat and play through it and hope the adrenaline comes up? And usually I'll just grab a banana and just try to make that feeling go away. And then I've also overeaten 
where you just feel a little bit bogged down <laughs> and slow from having too much food in your system. That's funny. I was talking to Will about this at Virginia because we we're playing there. And my conclusion is it doesn't matter. So for if you're, I mean, we're like, no, <laughs> like LeBron is at the top of basketball in his game. And he's like, everything has been optimized for him to play basketball at the yeah. best he can. Like it matters for him if he eats or not. But us as freestylers that do this after work, even though we practice a lot, like the variance is so high. I don't think it matters if we eat or not before the routine. Like you should do what is going to make your brain the most comfortable. Now what makes your body the most comfortable? That's what I generally agree. I think so even in basketball before, like even in our lifetime in basketball, people were still drinking and smoking and eating McDonald's after every game. Like that was pretty normal. And they were still the best basketball <laughs> players in the world. And now you can't do that and be a good basketball player. So we're still at the stage of freestyle where you can treat your body terribly and do everything totally unoptimized and still be really successful as a freestyler. But I do think if there was a future generation of freestylers that was far better than us, one of the things they would be doing is actually taking care of their bodies better. I think yeah. most <laughs> of the top freestylers have pretty bad habits. I don't want to call anyone out except Daniel, but Daniel and I, one of our deep connections in life is that we're terrible eaters and we travel well together because we eat junk. But actually one last thing about it, which is kind of a bummer is a lot of times there aren't good eating options around tournaments. So it's easy to be, it's either because they're at a field. So there might not be things nearby, but a lot of times, especially in these European cities, we're playing somewhere a little bit off the beaten path and there's not a lot of good food options around. And so I think if you want to take eating more seriously, you have to prepare your meals ahead of time and take them to the playing field and have a, or if nothing else, have a plan for the day, what you're going to eat. Mm-hmm. That is so extreme. Like the ROI on that, that's like marginal gains. I don't we never talk about marginal gains in freestyle, but we should because marginal gains are marginal for a reason. They like almost don't matter. Yeah. I don't know. I, I agree that they're marginal gains, but I think, I think they can matter. I mean, even if it was a 5% difference, you might suggest it's way less than that. That matters, especially over time and over multiple rounds. Cause I do, I might not feel it initially, but I'll feel it over a few days. If I keep not eating well at a tournament, like even at worlds this year, my wife was there and that I think made a big difference for both of us because she would go get us food. When we didn't have time <laughs> to go get it. So even if it's not the food itself that mattered, like it didn't matter so much what we were putting into our body and our, into our bodies. But the fact that we didn't have to go get it, we didn't have to like think about it. It came at the right time. Like those kinds of things mattered more than what we were actually getting. And we weren't, I don't think it's good to be racing around an hour before the round looking for something to eat, which has happened many times to Mm -hmm. both of us. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I think let's do maybe. So we've gone for about 45 minutes. Do you want a couple more little ones or do you want one bigger one? Let's do the big one. I'm going to use this person's name, breaking my own rule because I don't think he's specified. But the great Larry Imperiale, who's one of our most dedicated listeners, shout out to Larry. He is one of the greatest mob boppers in the world in history. And he has asked us to hear more about our advice for being better mob boppers. 
So let me just give a little more love to Larry. So not only is he one of our favorite listeners, he also, I don't think we mentioned this or not, but apparently he made his team at work listen to the growth mindset podcast or made them read the book or something. Like he brought the growth mindset to his team at work after listening to the podcast, which makes me think our podcast should just be a book review. (laughs) I think eventually we'll get there. That's by far everyone's favorite episode. And uh, he was the first top player to ever agree to play with me. Then he booshed me, which I told that story before. So I won't tell it again. But just the fact that he asked was a big honor. And he's widely considered one of the best mob hoppers because of his brushing, rolling, kicking skills. But we've talked about this subject before, but what are some of your big picture takeaways for how to be a better mob hopper? Okay, first one is it's not about the moves. It's about the moment. So sometimes you can just they'll brush it that's, that's incredible phrasing man. If you, if, good thing i was blithering i feel like you really constructed <laughs> that well it's not about the moves it's about the moment that should be on your tombstone that's great okay but keep going keep going yeah. say more okay i'll save no, that no, say more about it okay it's it's like uh building the crescendo we talk about this a lot but it's the throw is the start and the catch is the end and all the stuff in the middle is like connecting the two and you are trying to make the catch as big as possible. And, oh, I guess here back up. It's good to have an idea of what you want to do in the mob op before you start. Because if you're just going out there and doing your moves, it's going to be unconnected and the jam will just be at a level average and it'll just feel like even if it's good, it'll just feel the same level the whole time, which Mm -hmm. gets boring. So you want to go out there and be like, I'm going to hit this move at this moment in a big moment in a big moment or like, I want to show off this new move or something like that. So you have like an idea of what you want to do in the mob up and that can help you like do the right thing at the right time. So it's, it's like, okay, let's say I've been working all week on a new catch. Let's say it's a laser, which when you're just starting out, is hard but for you it's exciting so when you go out to the jam you probably don't want to catch laser in the first off the first throw when the jam is just starting you want to wait for everyone to settle in and everyone kind of gets comfortable and warms up and then you're going to wait for something to elevate the jam a little bit in the combo so like you throw someone hits a brush that's like restricted in some fancy way that you don't really see and people are get excited. That's when you hit your laser because you're like feeding off of the previous move in the combo and you can kind of build excitement in the mob op that way. Even though you're only hitting your laser, it's like you're using the energy I'm of the completely of the, tear you down here yeah. and I'm very sorry to do this. Okay. So <laughs> I especially in the mob up. And one thing I just want to say big picture, like we've talked a lot about how to be a better jammer, but let's focus really hard on mob opping in particular. So not just skills that are helpful jamming in general, which inevitably what we say is going to be true for that, but things that are specific to mob opping, which all say is jams with five or more people. I don't, I think the advice you're giving there is not going to work for most people because they're not going to implement it right. Because I think, there's a lot of people who just come into jams with tunnel vision and they're like, here's what I'm trying to do. And it's extremely specific. And I'm like, why do you keep trying this laser? It's completely inappropriate. I don't care that that's (laughs) what you're excited about. It's not helping this jam right now. And there's 
10 people in this jam and I don't have time for your laser. I'm being over, like, overly mean about it. What I thought you were going to say, which I do agree with, is I think it's okay to be like, to preset what role you want to have in the mob up of like, I want to be more in the catching lane lane and I want to focus a lot on catching it and catching it in the right moment. Or I'm going to be more in the setting lane. And like, this is what I'm always doing lately because it's something I want to be better at. It's like, I want to be positioned to be setting everyone crosswind sets all day long and doing a good job of that. Like, I think that's okay because it's generic enough and general enough that it's not going to be keeping you from making the right decision in the jam very much like a laser might. Like, here's a beautiful moment where one of your strongest, best, most exciting catches is available, but you're going to burn that moment to the ground so you can try your laser that you're going to drop. I don't want to see that. Um, The thing is, if Emily from your from Duke caught a laser where everyone else would have caught a guidus that would the whole jam would explode there's no one named emily in the durham jam scene which already undermines your credibility but that's a different thing like i'm not saying it's a problem for them to catch the new thing that they haven't caught before in the jam i just don't want that to be their focus in the mob op but i mean this is good i think it's good for us to disagree on this but i think that's too specific a thing to focus on during a mob op and let me make a bigger picture point about like pre-setting your intentions. So first thing was what I just said. I think it's okay to preset general intentions. Like I want to focus on catching or I want to focus on setting or I want to focus on one touch, like big picture things that aren't going to create tunnel vision. That's fine no matter what kind of jam you're in. Really specific things like I want to work on this new move. I think one that's more appropriate in smaller jams versus bigger jams because it's going to be less tunnel vision. You have more freedom to do what you want to do without interrupting what other people are trying to do. Um, but I also think if your goal is to make the best jam, I don't know the right way to put it, but like you want to be in a flow state. And if you're in a flow state, you're not really thinking that much about I'm trying to bend the world around so that I can practice my laser. You're trying to be in flow with what's happening in the world. And you're kind of brainless. Like I think, it's hard to describe all this. This is what happens when we don't prep anything, but <laughs> okay. Okay. Go ahead. I think there are fundamentals. There are fundamentals to the mob up that everyone should follow. And to get to the flow state, all of those fundamentals have to be like adhered to. So like one of them, you touched on one, which is roles, which is when you're, we're playing clock. When you're on the farthest to the right of the line, you're the, you're the cross world role setter. Like that's your main job. And if you're not doing that job, you're going to break the flow state. And if you're on the farthest to the left, you're going to, you're the person who guides us at the end on the music cue. And if you don't catch on when the person gives you the crosswind roll set, you're going to break the flow state. So like, I think like, what do you think are all those fundamental rules that you kind of always have to follow? But then on top of that, you can build within the like those like those rules aren't like so restrictive that you can't you can only do one thing you can do like lots of different variations without breaking the fundamentals i will build my way to answering that question and then i'll answer my own question which is still tearing down tearing <laughs> you down when i first started playing i remember sitting in the meadow with lou Sumrall, and we were watching I'm, I probably shouldn't tell this story with the specificity, but I'm going to do it anyways. I don't care. And I think I might've told a version of this before. We were watching Teddy and Joey play 
And at that time, especially it was like my first year of freestyling. I thought Teddy was the greatest freestyler to ever walk the face of the planet. And I didn't think anyone else was close. And I wasn't totally far off in having that opinion, but like that Teddy, I lived and died by Teddy at that time. And I was kind of talking about that. And Lou said something like, the thing you're not appreciating about Joey is that I have, this is Lou talking and Lou's like, I never know what he's going to do because everything he's doing is so spontaneous and in the moment that it doesn't look like he pre-thought out what he was going to do ahead of time, something like that. This is a conversation that's over a decade old. And I don't know if that's true about Joey and not true about Teddy. I don't want to get into into that. I don't know. But (laughs) that concept has really stuck with me a long time of there's some value and there's a greater expression of skill if when someone throws you the disc, you have no idea what you're going to do. No one else has any idea what you're going to do. And as you build your combo, everything is truly in the moment. And I do think I notice this among players, like even top players. I'm like, you just did your Yogi. I know exactly the next move you're going to do because I've seen you do it a million times. And to a certain degree, everyone becomes readable. I think we all build habits and have a vocabulary. And if you watch someone long enough and you have a high enough skill, you'll see that, you know, even if it's, you can tell a second before what they're about to do rather than, five moves before what they're about to do, you can start to read people really well. So there's a limit to this principle, but I like the idea of being able to play really in the moment like that. And I try to do that myself and try to keep it mixed up and not know like when they throw to me, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do C and D and E and F and then I'm going to catch this catch. I do that sometimes when I'm practicing, especially, or like if it's a smaller jam and I am trying to develop new things as I do a lot in the home jam, which we've talked about before, but that's part of learning. But if my goal is just to have like the best jam and have everybody in the moment, I'm trying to totally clear my mind of any preconceived notions and just do what feels right in the moment, which I'm getting very woo woo here, which I don't usually do, but <laughs> like to make it concrete, I don't plan what I'm going to do. And I try to make the decision at the very last possible second based on everything that just happened. And okay. I do like that. You have to, take all the context of what happened to pick your next move. Yeah. And it's like a video game with branching dialogue where you make a choice in the dialogue tree and that influences the next set of choices you yeah. have. Like once you go on a brush run, all your delay moves are out. Yeah. Type of thing. And, but it's also like, I do think it's pretty common for people to think before they get the throw to have in their head what they're going to catch. And again, I think that's really valuable for learning, but I think it's really good to practice not doing that and to practice just seeing like, I don't know what I'm going to do yet. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I'm trying to, now I'm looking back in my brain. Oh, you think people don't do that? I always, I think people have what they can catch, but it's not necessarily what they want to do. They just are like, this is my tool set and I'm going to use the most comfortable one. They're not like trying to catch that. That's like they're they're forced into it. I just it. think I see a lot of times someone, the overused expression is trying to push a square peg through a round hole. Like I'm like, I can <laughs> see that you really want to do this laser to use your example. And mm-hmm. it's not the appropriate thing to do, but you're so set on it. I mean, the best example is when someone's on the brush run and they keep rebrushing it and they're just trying to get the brush in exactly the perfect way to do whatever catch. It's like, no, the moment was gone long ago. 
just catch whatever you can based on the brush you have. Don't keep fighting to make the brush you want. I always thought that causality was the other way around. It's like when they get good enough to control the brush angle, then they catch the flow state catch. But in before that, they're just in panic mode. They're not trying to force it. They're trying not to drop. I'm sure it's both. Or maybe it's what I'm describing as a later problem. Like obviously at the very beginning, you have no bandwidth to do anything except keep brushing. But mm-hmm. I think it's super common. And it's what we call like the guide us twitch where someone's trying to guide us it and they're doing everything they can to force the disc into a set that lets them guide us it and they can't find it. And okay. they just obliterate all flow to find that guide us that they want. I do agree when I see that it is a jam buster. Yeah. So that's that, bringing us all the way back around to the thing I was originally criticizing. That's what I don't like about presetting something that specific for an entire day of mob hopping. It's like you've got a two hour mob hop ahead. I don't want you to be thinking about laser. I want you to be thinking about <laughs> catching, setting. I want you to think about those fundamental ideas that you were talking about. And sure, there's going to be moments where it will become appropriate for you to try something new. Yeah, generally, sometimes there might not be, but yep. and then it's okay. We need a whole podcast just on this part because there's two. I can say one thing and then I can say exactly the opposite. And it depends on the person which one they should choose. Well, I think part of what our problem here is that the question is really broad. So we haven't really set our parameters mm-hmm. of like what our goals are. So like I would yep. have a different answers for how to mob up better, depending on whether your goal was to learn in that mob up or to create the best mob up possible or to do any number yeah. of other things. It's a good or a beginner player. Yeah. So I think I've been approaching it as what's the best thing you can do. Like what are the things you can do to make, the mob op, the best mob op possible and not worry about learning, not worry about other goals. Just like, I want this mob op to be super great, super fun, super awesome, whatever. And I think maybe we should probably do a whole podcast on mob upping at some point. But I think what you were getting at was really good is like roles and understanding what the different roles are and knowing what your role is at any given moment. So this is going to be a classic, like everything we say is kind of a general rule that should be broken pretty regularly. And that's not always true and whatever. There's a million different exceptions. Like if you imagine a clock mob op, so it's a mob op with five more people where the disc is spinning clock at this time, you're going to draw a kind of diagonal line on the earth that has a particular relationship with the wind. So everyone is facing up wind and you have a diagonal. I would guess that like it goes from left to right. The right is going to be a little bit more upwind the left is going to be a little bit more downwind and you're going to have a diagonal line otherwise facing the wind, right? Why is it diagonal in your brain? I think that's how it usually is because like, it's hard to describe. Like if you're catching it, it's better for you to be a little bit downwind because you can move forward to do whatever catch you want. You can't move backward nearly as easily. And generally the you might catch it at your ankles, but like you're not going to be rolling it at your ankles. So like, you need to have your full body available to do whatever catch you want to do. Like, or think of it this way, right? When we jam where there's no wind or in the field, there's usually an upwind person and a downwind person, right? Mm-hmm. Like you still have an upwind downwind component to, I think, uh, it's funny that we're talking about mob hopping. So I'm sort of assuming it's on the beach. It might not be on the beach, but I'm assuming <laughs> it's on the beach. Like you can have an upwind down component, but you can't cross in front of each other. Like you can in the meadow because you'll block each other's wind. So that upwind downwind component gets spread out. And it's 
almost always the setter is a little bit further upwind than the catcher. Um, and then the left right component, the setter being on the right and the catcher being on the left is dictated by the wind and the spin of the disc. That all makes sense. I like, I agree with you that it should be diagonal. No, there's a pros and cons of having the diagonal line. It's mostly the diagonal doesn't matter. It's like where the person on, on the left, should they be ahead of the line or behind the line? Because they should be a little bit behind the line. Say, you always say behind because it gives them a chance to run up to the disc to make a bigger for when you have like more momentum so you can jump higher. I didn't hear a word you said you because time. Siri just started talking to me. So <laughs> say <laughs> okay. it one more time. I'm, I'm validating your point. Great, so. I'm being validated. You always okay. You always say start behind the line when you're the catcher on the left mm-hmm. because you can run up and you have more momentum and you can jump higher and it gives you more time and it makes the crosswind set easier because you don't have to set it out so far. It like cuts the corner off the set, which is a shorter distance, which is easier to do. And so all of those advantages. But I think there's one big disadvantage where I have a hard time doing it is I can't see when I'm behind the line, but I'm, I feel like you can see over the top of people, but I can't. And like, I am, I don't even can't, I have no idea what's going on. So I have to stand a little bit in front so I can see what's happening. Yeah, that's a fair point. And we're going to get, I'm going to get way too esoteric and no one's going to be able to follow us anymore. And I'm going to say something that doesn't make any sense. I care a lot less about whether you're upwind or downwind as the catcher, as I do about the setter. It's like, I think it sounds like you agree that the setter is a little bit upwind, but it's silly to talk about that because whether you're upwind or downwind is entirely relative to where the catcher is. <laughs> so if I say that the cat doesn't matter where the catcher is, like whatever, it doesn't make any sense. So maybe this is just something that practically that makes sense to me. It makes sense to nobody else. But, and also I should, the di- diagonal is incredibly faint. It's not a very sharp diagonal at all. It's like almost like one step in front of the catcher. It's almost nothing. <laughs> so we're probably making a mountain out of a molehill. And all this is just supposed to be set up to talk about the different roles so let me just try to go back to that. <laughs> and also like the might be win. I made all these assumptions that I didn't explain, which happens and we don't prepare, but the main point is if it's clock and you could switch everything for counter is the right hand side is setting. And the reason they're setting is that I don't know why is, why is it that there's, why does it make sense this way? Is it, I know it has to do with the fact that the disc is spinning clock and the wind is a certain direction, but it's not completely inherently obvious that, it makes sense that we generally like to set it from right to left clock and from left to right counter. Because of the procession, it always falls left. <sighs> Except that there's obviously a million ways to overcome the procession to get it to go the other way. But I guess it's about what's the most natural way. It's it's more natural. Like as the receiver, you want, it's the most predictable to, it's like in disc golf. I was about to say disc golf. I was about to say disc golf. than an Anheuser throw, right? Or a flex shot. Okay, so like this the is the, yeah. Here's our scientifically valid test that you can always do if you're trying to figure out which way the disc wants it to go. If you throw it clockwise, just relatively flat, which way does it fall out? It's going to fall out right to left. So that's why you want to set it right to left. Generally, again, rules used to break all the time. If you throw it counter flat, it'll fall from left to right. So that's generally why we set it that way. Okay, it's just it's about hydrating out, which is a disc golf. Mm-hmm concept okay that makes me feel better um so okay we're assuming it goes from right to left so if you're setting 
and it's going to go from right to left. The beginning of it falling is the right side and the setter is the beginning. So you start on the right, you set it to the left and the person catches it. So all this is, a is you can think about having three main roles. So even if there's five, six, 10 people, there's kind of three positions you can be on the field. You can be on the right side of the field. You can be in the middle of the field, or you can be on the left side of the field. Anyone on the left is in a catching position. The further left you are, the higher your entitlement to the catch is. But <laughs> at the same time, there'll be reasons that someone that's not the furthest to the left should catch it. The set makes more sense for them, whatever. Um, the person furthest to the right should be the one that instigates the crosswind set or has the highest entitlement to it. So you can think about it as priorities. It's not that the person to the furthest to the left should always catch it or the person for the right should always set it, but like you have the highest priority. So if you're doing a brush run and it's going from left to right, bump, 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 bump. Once you get to the person to the furthest to the right, that person should have a should be making a weighted decision where the weight is in favor of crosswind setting it <laughs> down to the left, either all the way or part of the way. So that's your hierarchy. The further you are on the left, the more likely you are to catch. Further you are on the right, the more likely you to set. The middle person is the facilitator, the point guard. They can go to the left. Or I feel like you can make some crazy board game that explains all of this. <laughs> so like if you're in the middle, you can go either to the left or to the right, depending on what you want to do. But you're like a one-stop shop. Like you're not, because here's another dimension. I'm like totally in a, I'm in a brain flow state right now about thinking about mob upping. Like people on the left and right have more flexibility about skipping people. Like you can crosswind set past everyone on the right, skip everybody to set it to the person to the furthest or the left. But the person in the middle is kind of like a one move. They're like a pawn. They can only move one space. Like they can set it immediately <laughs> to one side or the other, but they shouldn't generally skip that many people. Like that's kind of their role. And then if you think about the five person, if you're not all the way to the left or all the way to the right, you're in like a hooping position. <laughs> like you should be hooping. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop now, but I have... Now my brain is running wild, but the big point I was trying to make is that you kind of on the spectrum from catching to setting from left to right. And like, you should be aware of where you are in the line to know what kinds of things you should be prioritizing. The more left you are, the more catching you should be doing, the more right you are, the more setting you should be doing. And if you keep that like fundamental role in mind, you'll be in a really good situation. I also think... Once the disc starts going one direction, it should generally keep going that direction until it reaches the end of the line. So if you're at the left and you bump it towards your right, people should keep sending it to the right until it reaches the end, in which case you can send it back the other way. Mm -hmm. But like, it's like one of those rules that are meant to be broken, but yeah, it's a yeah, good starting. Of course, like every rule here, especially more than normally should be meant to be broken. But like one thing that makes mob ops feel a little bit stilted or go wrong is when it's obvious that it should be going one way and then someone changes it to go a different way that it isn't really supposed to go. But like those kinds of principles, I think help you figure out what you should be doing. Yeah. You use the word priority, but I like responsibility better. It's because something that happens is when a new person is playing in the jam for the first time, they, or they tend to like stand on the edges because that seems like the out of the way place. Yeah. But really the middle has the least amount of responsibility. Like that's where the new player should go because the ends, they have a job to do. And if they don't do the job, the jam falls apart. And so it's and like- And there's no backup. Yeah. No one can help you over there. 
The, I like responsibility too. The only reason I like priority is that priority indicates differences of degree rather than differences of kind. So like when you're the furthest to the left, you don't necessarily, it's not necessary, it's not necessary that you have to catch it, but like that should be a priority. I don't know. I think about it more. It's just your decision-making is always weighted in freestyle and it's weighted based on the circumstance, which includes where you're standing relative to other people in the wind. And that weight should inform what you do. And that also kind of goes to the rule breaking element of it, which is that like, yeah, most of the time you should catch it where you are. But if you did that every time and everyone did exactly what they're supposed to do every time, it'd be really boring. So it's more like whatever the number is, I have no idea. Like 60% of the time I should be catching it here, but sometimes I'm going to break that rule and do something else. Um, okay. But then the other thing we missed is like, it would also be really boring if we always stood in the same position, (laughs) but like, especially as you get better and as the mob op gets better where everyone in it is better, what makes them all great is people are constantly weaving in and out of their roles within the same combo. So it's, so for instance, like if you are not the most to the left and someone else is, you know, and it gets crosswind set to the person to the furthest to the left. Yes, most of the time they should catch it. But if you want to break the rule, the best thing you can do is weave so that you become furthest to the left. And now you give the person who's supposed to catch it a new option, which is they can reissue the set to you or they can hoop it or they can leg over. Or like they can do something else so that you become the catcher. But like knowing what your role is, is step one. Step two is constantly moving in and out of different roles. And Step three is probably like learning how to break your role sometimes or something. I don't know. I'd have to think about it, but like that's kind of the process I would go through to kind of think about being a better mob hopper is know my roles, shifting it out of them and then kind of know how to know how to break the rules and when it's appropriate to break the rules. Mm-hmm. I think those are the good fundamentals. What actually do you have any more on the fundamental layer? I don't know. I feel like, my brain is just running wild. You know, sometimes when they talk about great basketball players, they talk about how they can read the floor and they can see all these things that no one else can see. But that's advanced. Yeah. So I was just going to say like when they talk about it in basketball, I have just no idea what they're talking about. And it just, it doesn't make any sense to me, but I'm understanding now in the freestyle context is like when I'm watching or in a mob op, I'm aware of so many things that probably almost nobody else is. And it's so hard for me to explain what those things are. The first one is, top mob hoppers know every move that every other person in the jam has and they know which ones which moves they like and which ones they don't like, like when you and i are mob hopping we always look at each other at the same beats and like nod at each other knowingly like we know that's we know that something either just went right or we know exactly what went wrong <laughs> and i don't know like we're learning right now in real time that we can't always explain what it is yet or why but there's something that we understand that you develop from doing mob hopping a lot. Mm-hmm. Like there's a baseline and once you get good, you can start disrupting the baseline in interesting ways. And like, even if it doesn't succeed, it's still funny that it happened. You know, <laughs> I like, yeah, I'm thinking now about your point about knowing what everyone else can do. That's super key and super important and weirdly intuitive that people tend to have a pretty good ledger of what other people are capable of. Like, it's kind of amazing. You you think about how, you know, I live in the United States and I probably can't name every state. If you asked me to right now, it'd be like really difficult, 
but I do like unconsciously have an incredibly vast dictionary of every player in the freestyle community <laughs> and what moves they can or can't do. Like, I think if you just named a player and a move with 95% accuracy, I could tell you whether or not they could do it. But I also think this is where you and I look at each other knowingly. I feel like is when I know someone can't do something, but I give it to them anyways, cause it's the right thing to do. And that's how they learn how to do it. Which is sort of like, I know if I said it to you this way, you're not going to be able to deal with it, but you have to learn how to deal with it. So I'm going to do it. That's hard. But there's also something so pleasing when you see someone make the right decision, especially for the first time. Yep. Okay. What else did I miss? Anything? I mean, a million things. So I have to do a whole podcast on mob opinion. I have to think about it a lot more. Yeah. I have to write out a whole, my nine point detailed plan. Yeah, we'll do it. Okay. But I think we've gone about an hour or so. I think we should probably wrap it up here. Anything else you can think of that we should say? Not much, unless you want to talk about dirt bikes or mountain bikes. No, we'll save that for another podcast. <laughs> I'm in the market for a bike. I've got Ryan and everyone else in my ear about what I need to get. And uh, we'll, we'll figure that out. But I guess the next thing on my radar is the jam, which I'm really excited about in Jacksonville Beach, Florida. I'm bringing Brendan with me. So there'll be some new Durham blood in the jam this year. So heading out that way look forward to seeing him shred and with that thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week